Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 13. Hear now God's Word. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, uh, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and uh, Egypt and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues and the wonder, speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, "Whatever could this mean?" Others, mocking, said, "They are full of new wine." And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Last Sunday was on the church calendar designated as Pentecost. It was Pentecost, in fact. Uh, But like so much of the rest of the calendar, various events have caused some schedule shifts this year. And so uh, last Sunday we had Dr. Schlecht in our pulpit who dealt with another topic. Today we're going to get a sermon on Pentecost, and thus I am wearing red uh, just uh, we usually only do that on Pentecost and Reformation Sunday, but uh, decided to do that today because this is part of a series that I began a few weeks ago, starting with Easter or coming leading up to Easter, and now in the Book of Acts. We started in Luke 24, which occurred right after Passover and the crucifixion. So now our story is between Passover and Pentecost. Uh, Fifty days after Passover, in the first first century, Jews celebrated the agricultural feast called Pentecost. The first sheaf of the wheat was offered to God, partly as a sign of gratitude for God having blessed them, and also a prayer that the rest of the crop would result in a good harvest. So both Passover and Pentecost were, however, a good bit more than simply agricultural festivals. They were, they were also memorials of Israel's history, their story, starting with their exodus from Egypt when God fulfilled his promise to Abraham to rescue his people. Passover commemorated the time, you'll recall, when the Israelites were spared the judgment of the avenging angel uh, that killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. And so they, in memory of that, sacrificed lambs uh, of the, uh, uh, to, to remember this seminal event in their history, which was immediately followed by the Exodus and passing through the Red Sea and into the Sinai Desert. Then, 
50 days after Passover, they came to Mount Sinai where Moses received the law. Pentecost is ultimately about God giving to his redeemed people the way of life by which they must now represent him and his redemptive plan. These early chapters of Acts are written with a Jewish audience in mind who would have had all of this history in their minds. It would have been inculcated into them year after year. They were One of the mantras of Scripture is to not forget this, to repeat this. And that was the idea of these festivals and celebrations was a, a, a way of memorizing and, and embedding these ideas into them. And so it's within this context of the first fruits that this next chapter of this old familiar story is unfolding. The story hasn't ended. We're not just talking about something that happened in the past. We're talking about something that was happening right then and, most important, something that is still happening right now to us. We're part of this story, as we'll see. And so Luke assumes that his readers will see these events as the apostles being Uh, of the apostles being filled with the Spirit and then going on to bear powerful witness to Jesus and his resurrection and then the winning of many converts as a sign that this is like the sheaf, this first sheaf of first fruits which is offered to God as a great sign of the harvest to come. So we'll see next week that 3,000 souls were added in one day. Those are the first fruits. That was Pentecost. How many thousands, how many millions of believers have been harvested since the day of Pentecost? That harvest continues today. In another parallel, we recall that when the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai, Moses went up to the mountain and he came back down with the law. And likewise, after the resurrection of Jesus... He has gone up to heaven in the ascension, and now he is coming back down. Uh, uh, He's coming down again, not with a written law carved in tablets of stone, but rather uh, the law that is designed to be written on human hearts. Jesus had already told his disciples, his apostles, that they would be witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. Again, it reminds me very much of what we'll see with Abraham So the question is, how would God fulfill this promise to extend his kingdom, not only in Israel, but throughout Israel, but through Israel to reach the rest of the world? How is that going to happen? So again, this is the same promise, really, that God gave to Abraham. We read in Genesis 22, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This global promise comes immediately after Genesis chapter 11 in which the people of Babel are building a tower thinking arrogantly to make a name for themselves. Basically, they, they, like Eve, Adam, wanted to be as God. We can do whatever we want to do. We'll just get together and put our heads together and follow the science and the engineering We can do it all ourselves. There is no need for God. We can do this. And I thought of Psalm 2, which declares that he who sits in the heaven shall laugh. He shall hold them in derision. 
So God responds to their pride and arrogance uh, by overturning the project and mocking the people, which he accomplishes by confusing their languages so that they can't understand one another and they can't therefore work together on creating a human society which, which would have no need for God. I suppose we could think of this as uh, an international infrastructure project that continues to this day. If we could just pump enough money and get enough scientists and engineers and smart people together, we could, we could fix everything, right? We can create utopia. We can create heaven on earth. And God is still laughing. Luke is telling us that the day of Pentecost, though, is the reversal of Babel and the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. The whole human race is going to be given the good news of what has happened in and through Jesus Christ. This is the true critical race theory which addresses man's true problem. So pay attention. I'm not just making a a light reference there. This is the true critical race theory. This is the solution. It's the only solution. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father but through him, but everybody can come through him. He is the unifying Savior. Our text tells us that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, the disciples were with one accord in one place. They were doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do, which was to pray and to wait for the Holy Spirit to come and to empower them. And it suddenly, I'll read the text again, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There can be no life without the Spirit. No understanding without the spirit of truth. No fellowship without the unity of the spirit. No Christ-likeness of character apart from the spirit's fruit. And no effective witness without his power. Now let's talk about the signs for a moment that are spoken of here. Odd, right? And again, we read in a few minutes there, people were amazed, perplexed. What's going on here? This is strange. What does it mean? As a body without breath, a corpse, a body without breath is a corpse. So the church without the Spirit is dead. Just as the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus when John baptized him so that he entered his public ministry, we're told, in, uh, full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit. So now the same Spirit has come upon the disciples of Jesus to equip them for their mission in the world, which is to simply extend the mission that Jesus has already begun. They are the body of Christ. Jesus isn't finished. In fact, he's expanding his ministry to the world. We've asked the question, how's he going to do this? This is how he's going to do it. Jewish tradition associated wind, fire, and voices with Mount Sinai. The three supernatural signs which Luke is about to describe came upon them. 
First, there was the sudden sound of a rushing mighty wind. The word for spirit or wind and breath are the same word in Hebrew and Greek. Uh, There's a Hebrew word and a Greek word. The Greek translation of Genesis 1-2 tells us that the spirit or the wind hovered over the face of the earth. The face of the waters, excuse me. The power, the powerful prophecy of the Old Testament, for example, in the valley of the dry bones passage, which Roy preached from recently in Ezekiel 37. Also, he said to me, prophesy to the breath or the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. That's also what we're seeing take place right here on the day of Pentecost. The sound of the wind then was a reminder of creation and an indication of a new creation, a resurrection from the dead. As the old was giving way to the new, or as Paul would say, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Second, there were the divided tongues of fire that rested on each one of them. Fire like wind is a symbol symbol of the presence of God. A pillar of fire led the church through the wilderness. And it was a burning bush that symbolized God's presence to Moses. Furthermore, the fact that the tongues were divided rather than singular suggests that whereas the presence of God in the Old Testament was localized in the temple, it was now to be be a factor in every believer. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Third, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now I'll say more in just a moment about this sign. But first, I want to make a few observations about a few other powerful details that I think are present in this text. It's interesting and important to note that, by and large, all the people present were Jewish, or at least they were proselytes, that is, Gentiles, who had converted to Judaism, since the reason they were in Jerusalem was to attend Passover and Pentecost. They'd traveled, they'd planned, they'd saved their money. Now they're coming here for these great festivals. And, of course, if you travel that far, you stay for a while. And here they are for this 50-day period. It's also important to note that they had come from all over, from countries, uh, each, each of which would have had its own native language or dialects. Now, probably most of them also spoke Greek but they each would have had their native languages as well. Luke gives the list of where they came from. It's not an exhaustive list, but it was certainly a representative list of the known world. Most of these people were, again, probably bilingual, but the point is they are now hearing words spoken in their own native language. It's not surprising that some blew them off as having had too much to drink. Throughout the book Acts, throughout church history, and even in our own day, we find that there's always opposition and scoffing and sneering at what the followers of Christ do and say, uh, while many are moved to believe. You might recall Paul at the Areopagus 
in Athens after he speaks. I really love the way that glorious presentation ends with this kind of almost casual commentary. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again on the matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Same message, three different reactions. There are always plenty who will declare that the gospel is foolishness and that we are wasting our time and talking incomprehensible nonsense. So the wind, the fire, the tongues caused the crowd to come together. I think really mainly the sound. We're not sure that they saw the the flames that came or necessarily heard the wind, but they certainly heard these voices. And when they heard their own language, they were confused, amazed, and perplexed. A range of things. Not because they didn't understand the words, but because they did, and it was bizarre. What was going on? So they sought to understand it. Whatever could this mean, they later asked in verse 12. Somebody explain what's going on. So back to the wind, fire, and tongues. As we think about what else Scripture has to say about these three signs, we at least know that they represented the new era of the Spirit which was beginning. Something big was happening. In the Bible, whenever we see miracles happening and things of that nature throughout the Old Testament, also now in the New, God is calling attention to something big is going on. John the Baptist had declared that Jesus, quote, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The wind may have symbolized, again, life and power, such as Jesus had promised them for witness in Acts 1. The fire represents purity. Remember the coal that uh, was put on Isaiah's lips in Isaiah 6? The speech in other languages, what could that mean? How about the universality of the Christian church? The international nature. This leads us to that critical observation. Luke is emphasizing the international nature of the crowd that had assembled and thus the international mission of the gospel. They were all God-fearing Jews. They were all staying in Jerusalem, and yet most of them had not been born there. They came from the dispersion, from every nation under heaven. And remember now, God's historical timing is perfect. It's still perfect. They were hearing their own native language, yet the speakers were known to be Galileans. Why is that important? Because Galileans were thought of as unsophisticated and uneducated. These were good old boys. And now we're hearing not one, not two, not five. I don't know how many. Well, there's a list there, a long list of different languages being spoken by country boys. Luke writes that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now the word here is glossolalia, 
The glossolalia, that's the word tongues or other tongues, on the day of Pentecost was the supernatural ability to speak in recognizable foreign languages. This was not gibberish. This was not some unknown language. These were known languages, not known to the speaker, but known to those who were hearing it. We'd say Spanish or Russian or Japanese. Glossolalia, though, is mentioned without explanation in several New Testament passages, but in Acts 2, we find the only passage in which it is described and explained that these are foreign languages. Luke is saying to us that on the day of Pentecost, the whole world was there by its representatives of the various nations, and this event symbolized the unity in the Spirit transcending racial, national, and linguistic barriers. Current efforts to address racial divides are only dividing us further. Old Testament Israel also exacerbated the racial and ethnic divides. You know how about how much they hated the Gentiles. They were in sin when they did that. The church has also sinned by failing to recognize this fundamental message and nature of the kingdom of God and the gospel message. That is not what the Bible has taught, that we're to be divided and separate. It's the exact opposite of what the Bible has taught. And we need to be bold in that proclamation. We need to repent of any arrogance And humble ourselves before God. God can make children of Abraham out of rocks. Ever since the early church fathers, commentators have seen the blessing of Pentecost as a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. At Babel, human languages were confused and nations were scattered. In Jerusalem, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign of the nation that the, that the nations would now be gathered together in Christ. This prefigured the great day when the redeemed company will be drawn from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Revelation 7-9. After these things, John said, I looked and behold a great multitude which no man could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Hallelujah. At Babel, earth proudly tried to ascend to heaven. In Jerusalem, heaven humbly descended to earth. Jesus does love the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world, and so should we. Now, we're Americans. We're one of the many nations of the world. And we have many reasons to be thankful, but we also have many reasons to be humble. And we should never, never confuse 
our being Americans with our being Christians. The kingdom of God transcends all nations, including America. Our first loyalty is to Christ, not to Rome or to America. Many nations have come and gone, but the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. God started with the Jews, but he never intended to restrict his grace to the Jews, nor to Americans or Europeans, or to anybody else. It is the gospel of Christ, not the possession of a nation, and he gives it to all the nations. Jesus told his disciples that they were witnesses of these things to the uttermost parts of the earth. Our contemporary politics is polarized between multiculturalist and populist and the problem of language as practiced and symbol as practice and symbol often takes center stage. Many conservative Christians have allied themselves with the populists, and that's an understandable alliance. But the church is international and multi and multinational, and she contains many languages with one spirit and one Lord. Our first allegiance is to King Jesus and his church. His kingdom is forever. As Christians, we labor in the hope that the Spirit will make his presence felt among the nations. Now, it's essential that we make this connection. That we see the connection between Pentecost and the life and ministry of Jesus. It's one of those key historical events like creation, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming. Jesus' ascension began a series of significant events. First, there was the glorification of his body from its previous condition of humiliation and then the resurrection. Second, we see his entrance into that reward that was promised to him Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Third, from this exalted position, he now distributes his gifts to the church. He's on the throne. He's handing out gifts to his people. Fourth, from this exalted position as our great high priest, he now intercedes on our behalf. And fifth, having sent the Holy Spirit, he now works through the church, his body, to continue his mighty works on the earth. I've commented on this before. You know, I think we're all tainted, some more than others, by the news. It's what news? Who decides what you're going to hear? Who decides what's news? Do you know how much news there are? there is that you don't know anything about and do you know how much of it relates to the church every single day every hour of every day every minute of every day right this second where God's people are and are being salt and light and loving and sacrificing and serving and praying and ministering none of that's reported or very little of it is But that doesn't doesn't mean it's not there. Nobody's reporting on hell either. But that doesn't take it away. 
don't think that the only thing that's true is what's reported on cable news or on the Internet. God is at work right now among us, all over this city, this state, this country, and this world, and he has been. And boy, it's going to be a big surprise when it all comes to light. Allow me to say this again another way. The incarnate Son of God ministered on the earth for several years, and thus there were many witnesses who had seen, heard, touched, eaten a meal with him. They had witnessed his baptism. They had witnessed his many signs and wonders. They heard him teach with authority. They saw him dead and buried. They had seen, heard, and touched him after his resurrection. They were instructed in the scriptures by him, putting it all together. They watched him ascend into heaven. And now, now they were being empowered by the Holy Spirit who was sent by Jesus to them so that they could continue the very work and ministry of Jesus as his body with Jesus still as the head. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are all still part of this very same empowered body. So Pentecost signaled that something had been done, that is, the atoning work of the Messiah, and that something had not yet been fully accomplished, that is, the gathering together of all of God's people into the church, the body of Christ. The coming of the Holy Spirit was the result of the former and the enabling of the latter. It should be clear then, that Pentecost marked the continuing work and ministry of Jesus Christ. Just, uh, this is what Jesus said in the upper room on the night of his betrayal, that the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, would be sent by him. Listen to just these three passages from John, John 14, 25, and 26. These things, Jesus said, I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things I said to you. And by the way, I'd like to suggest that the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the Word of God and our Bibles means that we have that too. It's been handed down to us. John 15, 26 and 27, Jesus said, But when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, who I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And then in John 16, 7, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I'll send him to you. The Holy Spirit's coming was to shine the spotlight on the person and work of Jesus, not to draw attention to himself. Peter's sermon will make clear what the prophet Joel had promised in Joel 2, 28 through 32. Just an aside, I may say more about this next week. It really struck me. Suddenly in Acts, you know, in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is talking to his disciples 
and, and showing them, opening the scriptures to them to show how all the prophets and Moses and the Psalms talked about him. And they were amazed. And they said, oh, don't leave. We've got to know more. Well, Jesus was there for about 40 days. I don't know how many hours he spent with them, but apparently he spent a lot of hours with them just opening the Bible up because all of a sudden we see Peter and a bunch of others quoting Old Testament passages. We saw that last week with the selection of Matthias, and Peter said, oh, this is the fulfillment of these psalms. We gotta, we gotta, uh, it tells us about Judas, and it tells us that we've got to replace Judas. Now we see Peter, and we're going to see this more next week, is quoting from Joel about Pentecost. How did Peter know that? We don't hear Peter doing that kind of thing before this. And I'd like to suggest that that 40 days was quite a seminar. That Jesus was teaching them the Bible. He's going from page to page to page. And say, see, right here, this was talking about me. And, And this one, that's talking about me too. And this, that's Judas. And that, that's Pentecost. See, it's been here all along. Quotes from Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, God says, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maidservants and on my, on my men servants and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. In fact, what Moses had longed for, that all of the Lord's people would be prophets has come to pass. You remember Numbers 11:29. Then Moses said to him, are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And here it is. So in summary, whatever does this mean? These folks were amazed. So they asked, what is this? In his soon-to-be-delivered sermon, that's coming next, Peter's answer to their question is, that God's promise to pour out the Holy Spirit in the last days has been fulfilled. That's what it means. The reason for this, and this is really important, the reason for this is that the promised Davidic king, descendant of David, has in fact come and has been raised to sit forever on David's throne. Now, here's why this is important. You remember that the Jews, including the apostles and the disciples, had been expecting a new king to assume David's throne, and that's why they were so crushed immediately after the crucifixion because they thought that's what Jesus was going to do. And it turns out they were right. They were just wrong about how. They were thinking too small. Because this kingship is way bigger than a king sitting on a throne in Jerusalem kicking out the Romans. This is a Jesus. This is a king. This is the son of David who reigns forever and has made all of his enemies a footstool. And so Peter is about to declare in Acts 2.33, Therefore... Being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this 
which you now see and hear. So the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is evidence of the reign or the exaltation of the Lord Jesus from from the throne of David. Jesus is the Lord who has been exalted to the right hand of God, a position of power and authority and the place from which the blessing and deliverance for God's people comes. And that's as true today as ever. So stop fretting about the news. The Bible is our source of confidence. Jesus is now the bestower of God's blessings for God's people, sending the Holy Spirit as God's enabling presence for his people. Luke's opening narrative of Acts referenced two days, the day he was taken up into heaven and the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out from heaven. These are designed to show that it is the Lord Jesus who rules and directs the affairs of men in this period of the kingdom of God. And this has powerful implications for the church, including us. And I close with this. We are still in this period of the kingdom of God. We are still in this very story. God is still at work in and through his people, and we are still his witnesses. Let's pray. Father, we began by thanking you for all your good gifts, but especially today we thank you for sending the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, to not only comfort and lead us into all truth, but also to fill us and send us as ambassadors for Christ and his gospel. Stir us from our complacency and encourage us in our fears that we might hear and feel and uh, the might the mighty wind of the Spirit, and experience the flaming power of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Dr. Peter Lightheart wrote in his book, uh, Between Babel and Beast, Pentecost inverted Babel, uh, Babel, not in a tower reaching heaven, but in an upper room. The apostles and their associates received the heavenly spirit, and in Acts, this is immediately followed by a table of nations and a deconfusion of tongues. At Pentecost, God advanced his post-Babilic purpose of returning nations, excuse me, of reuniting nations. The pneumatic, that is the spirit-filled church, became God's renewed imperium. The spirit-filled church became the new Zion, the mountain from which Israel's God rules and from which he reaches out to the Romans and barbarians. It is anti-Babel at nearly every point. Many tongues, not one, scattering, not gathering, built on the blood of a willing victim, Jew and Gentile united in God's work, not in opposition to him. Yet the Uh, Ecclesial Imperium is at certain points a mirror image of Babel. All tribes, tongues, nations, and peoples confess with one lip that there is one Lord, Jesus. Jesus sends his spirit to enliven the church as a multilingual, multiethnic, multinational empire. We who have also received the spirit of God must now show forth the first fruits of the gospel. We must reach out 
to all men and all nations, every tribe and tongue, with the message of peace in Jesus Christ. We must see ourselves as the new humanity, the new creation in Christ Jesus, citizens of a new nation. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we often rely on ourselves rather than the Holy Spirit. Help us to be filled with Him rather than filled with ourselves. Cause the fruit of the Spirit to be manifest in us toward all men, especially toward those who are the household of faith. May we learn the grace of forgiving others, even as you have demonstrated such grace toward us by forgiving our many sins. Almighty and ever-living God, you fulfill the Easter promise by sending us your Holy Spirit. May that Spirit unite the races and nations of the earth, that we all might proclaim your glory. May the Holy Spirit come to rest on our hearts and remove the divisions of men that are caused by sin. And with one voice and one tongue, may we praise your name in joy and thanksgiving. Grant this through Jesus Christ. Bless now our feasting, our resting, and our rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen.